So this has, as Andrew said, been a very difficult week in the life of our community. Some of you have been affected directly and probably no person in here doesn't know someone or isn't close to someone that hasn't been affected directly by the storms that swept through Calhoun County and hit Jacksonville and Nances Creek and Rabbit Town and Fruithurst. And as we think about these moments like this and these difficulties like this, as we drive down Hollingsworth Road or you go through Jacksonville and you just see the utter devastation and the utter, utter destruction and just the power and the might of these storms and you begin to process the reality that so many people are starting over and that other people are starting over and they have no insurance and they're just figuring all of these things out. It, it, it just arrests you, doesn't it? But you know, as I was kind of doing, I had the privilege and joy of being able to go out with some other brothers and kind of be able to go and, and serve some of the folks in the community, I was able to talk with a number of folks. And as I was talking with a number of folks, what I was able to realize is that for our community and for our church, and not just our church, but for the church, local, big C, like all of the local churches here that love the gospel and love Jesus Christ, this is an opportunity this is an opportunity. Because as I talk with people, multiple people who are standing on the rubble of their homes, standing on the rubble of their properties, people who had literally lost all things that they owned to their names, people that had nothing left, you know every single one of them said? Not a single one responded in anger not a single one that I talked to was bitter. I'm sure they've had hard moments. I'm sure they've asked difficult questions. Those things just happen. That's just, that's just humanity. That's just life. But in the conversations that I had with each person, as they stood on the rubble of their possessions, on the rubble that was their life's work, every single one of them said, we are blessed. We are blessed. We have our family, we have our health, we have our community. Many of them would say we have our Lord, we have Jesus Christ, we have our church. See, there's something about moments like this and hardships like this that puts life into perspective, isn't it? That when we see the force of a storm like this, we realize how small we are we realize really kind of how out of control of things that we really are. We realize that, you know, there are some Mondays, we may wake up on Monday morning and it just be a routine day and we get our coffee and go to work and do our thing, but when our head hits the pillow on Monday night, everything be different, everything be changed. And it puts our lives into perspective. And there's an opportunity in there for us because the God of the universe who does control all things, who in his sovereignty reigns over things that are so much greater than us that we can't even begin to 
fathom them. He is determined to bring good to his people and glory to the name of his son, glory to the throne of his son. And because he is determined to bring good to his people and glory to the name of his son, this can be more than a momentary change of perspective. There is an opportunity here that this can be an awakening for our community. And this can be an awakening in our church family. And this can be an awakening in the broader local church. That if we will devote ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and let this put us in our proper place. And the Lord God in his proper place. That because of his determination to bring good into the lives of his people. And glory to the name of his son. That this is an opportunity for our our lives to be adjusted into their proper place and for our community to experience long-term and lasting awakening. And if that happens, brothers and sisters, then we will look back a decade from now, two decades from now, and multiple generations will say, this is the greatest thing, as hard as it was, that ever happened to our family. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn together to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Told you before about how God used the natural disaster in my life to lead to my salvation and the salvation of my sisters and the salvation of my dad and the call to my ministry, the burning of my house. The Lord is certainly sovereign and can do these things. And so we're going to see in our parable this morning, the final of these three parables. We're going to see again the determination of the Father to bring glory to His Son. The determination of the Father to bring glory to His Son and at the very same time to pour out His generosity and His grace on His people. Matthew chapter 22. When you've gotten there, if you'll you'll stand with me. We'll read the first 14 verses together. Matthew chapter 22, we'll read the first 14 verses together. God's inerrant and all-sufficient word says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not ready. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for many are called, but few are chosen. 
May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and sufficient word this morning. You may be seated. So Jesus is still responding to the confrontation of the temple leaders when they have come to him and they have said, who do you think you are? Where did you get the authority to come and to do the things that you're doing and to say the things that you're saying and to flip the tables as you're flipping? And so Jesus is responding and he's teaching in three parables and we have come to the final of those parables. In this parable, he has moved the scene. In the previous two, he has been in a vineyard, using a vineyard, or or he has cast the picture of a vineyard, talking about a vineyard as the scene. But now, he has moved the scene from a vineyard to the scene of a king who is throwing a banquet for his son, who is soon to be married. A bridegroom, which is a frequent picture, an allusion to Christ. Revelation 19 talks about a wedding supper for the Son of God. The wedding supper for the lamb. Now, in the time of Jesus, in the time of, uh, of the New Testament, it was very similar to our day. The way that you would do this is you would, the way that you would invite someone to a dinner or to a banquet was very similar to the way that you would invite someone to a wedding now. You would send out an invitation and they would RSVP, right? Like they would RSVP and they would tell you that they were coming. And by knowing how many were coming, you would prepare a meal that was of an appropriate size. You would prepare a meal. You would know how many animals to kill. You would know how much meat to prepare so that you would not prepare too much. Now, when the king told you to come, it was more than a suggestion. You need to understand that. When the king told you to come, it was a gracious invitation. Just by eating at the king's table, it was to raise your social standing. But it was more than a suggestion. It was more than a kind offer. It was more than an offer to raise your social standing. It was, in fact, a demand. It was a command. As a matter of fact, if you watch enough period dramas, right, like you, you watch enough, you watch enough to, uh, you know, to, of, of England when they were kind of in the feudal system, right, if... A, a, a lord would know that the king of England was going to execute him because, and he would invite him to his castle and the lord would still go to the castle because you just did not refuse the king, right? Because it would be better for you to go to the castle and be executed at the castle instead or than the king to send like his entire military and burn your whole farm down for your family, right? So, so you did not reject an invitation from the king. So apparently that's the situation that we have here. The king has sent out invitations, and these invitations have went out to all of the people that you would have expected in town, all of the leaders of society, all of the elite of society, all of the people that would have been expected at a dinner that was to honor the prince of the town. They have all RSVP. They have all said, yes, we will come, and the king is expecting them, and the king has went, and he has prepared the feast that is appropriate. The feast is now ready. The food has been prepared. The fattened calf has been slaughtered. The oxes are done. Everything is good. It's just as it is supposed to be. And so he sends out his servants to go and get all of the guests that are to come and to gather themselves at the king's table to enjoy the generosity of the king and to see the king lavish his love and honor upon his son. Except all of the guests rebel buff the king. All of the guests who have already said, yes, we'll come. Yes, we'll do the thing. Yes, just, just get the calf ready. Get the food ready. Prepare the table. All of them have RSVP'd. But now the king has sent his servants to go and retrieve the guests. And all the guests have said, nope, 
not coming, not interested, not showing up. Now, if you've ever prepared a big event and you've got a bunch of people that have registered and they just don't show up, it's frustrating, okay? But if you're the king, it's not just rude, it's an insult to your dignity. Now, we live in an era, because we live in America, right, that people will frequently be invited to the White House to go and to meet the president or perhaps have dinner with the president, and they will protest, right? They will not go out of protest of a presidential policy. It doesn't matter which president it is. It doesn't matter which policy it is. Just an athlete or, or, or whatever, they will not go. They will make it a public spectacle as to why they're not going because this is America, they have the right to do that, and so I'm not going because I don't support the policies of this president, and, and they'll, they'll make a big deal about it, right? This ain't America, okay? This ain't America. And you didn't protest the king. Because what you need to understand, this was not just rude, this was not just an insult to his dignity, this would have been viewed as nothing less than treason. Nothing less than treason. This was to reject the king. This was to show that you were not loyal to the king. This was to show that you were not in support of the country, not in support of the king, and if you had your way, you would overthrow the king. And so the expectation of the day would have been that if you were to live in such, such insubordination to the king, with such contempt for the king that it was perfectly within the rights of the king. As a matter of fact, it would have been the expectation of the king to publicly execute you, to humiliate you, perhaps even execute you and all of your family and kinfolks so that there would not be a rebellion and an uprising against his throne. But this king, this king is absurd. This king is absurd. This king is absurd because he is so gracious. He is so merciful that not only does he not execute them, not only does he not ruin their farms and ruin their livelihood, not only does he not wipe out their entire generation of people, he sends more servants to them. He sends more servants to them. He sends even more servants. It's it's almost like the king looked at his servants and was like, you didn't do it right. You didn't go and tell them right. You, you didn't tell them. You, you, you got to go and you got to make their mouths water, okay? You, you got to go and paint the picture for them. You got to go and tell them how good this is. Man, they're, they're not coming to Panera Bread here, okay? We're, we're, not, we're not, this isn't a vegan menu we've got going down here at the king's table. We're talking filet mignon. We're talking about the fattened calf. This is classic, man. Like, this is, this is Ruth's Chris. This is Brazilian steakhouse stuff, man. You got, like, the red card, green card situation going on here, right? Like, bring me the beef. Bring me all the lamb. Bring me all the stuff that you got. Like, we've got an oxen. I don't know if any of you have ever eaten an ox. I've never eaten an ox. Apparently, that was a big deal. And we, we've got the brisket. The brisket's going down. Brisket's on. We don't have those cheap flimsy pork chops from the discount grocer. We've got the ones that are like two and a half inch thick. The servants have been going down. They've been cooking. Like we got like Mary Vaughn food going on, okay? Like this is not the cafeteria. This is like perfect youth camp breakfast, okay? Like this is ideal 
food. Go out, send out the servants, and you tell them that this is not your average meal. You make their mouths water. You didn't go and you didn't tell them right. So in his sovereignty, this king could have murdered them, executed them, slaughtered them, assassinated them. But in his sovereignty, instead, he extends to them more grace and more mercy. He sends to them more servants. You have to understand that the, that the group of people, the temple leaders, they would have been expecting, they would have been expecting that this king was going to kill these men. They were expecting that he was going to do this. But this king instead is like, no, go be sweet to them. Go be nice to them. Draw them in. Persuade them. Kings don't persuade people. Kings don't plead with people. Kings demand people. And so by this point, man, he's got the audience and they're hanging on every word. They're hanging on every word that he's saying. Because their expectation is surely, surely by now they're gonna come to their senses. You've got a king who didn't kill you Not only did he not kill you, but he has come and he has sent more servants to tell you how wonderful this is and how kind he's going to be to you and how lavish his love is going to be and how wonderful this meal is going to be. That surely at this time, these these people are going to realize, they're gonna come to their senses and they're gonna recognize how great this king is and how good this king is. They're gonna hear these servants and they're gonna come, they're gonna show up and there's gonna be this wonderful celebration of the bridegroom. So they go back to the servants or they go back to the invitees to the party. And do you know what the response is the second time? Well, you know, uh, you see, my sock drawer is like really out of kilter. And my, my whites and my, my blues and my blacks, they're like really all mixed in together. And I've been telling the lady at home I was gonna get that straightened out and I've really blocked out tonight. I'm sorry, I'm just not gonna be able to make it. Or, you know, like, like tonight is family game night and, and I'm the charades champion, and I've got to defend the family crown. So, yeah, it's just not going to work for me. I'm sorry. Please just give the, give the, give the king my best, would you? Says most of the people just blow him off. Most of the people are totally indifferent. So they just go back to their farms. They just go about their lives. They're totally apathetic, totally indifferent that the king has been so good to them, has been so gracious with them, has put pleading and persuading with them to come. In fact, though most are indifferent, some are even malicious toward the king, show contempt toward the king. And they take his servants and they begin to mock his servants and beat his servants and they execute his servants. The very extensions of his grace, preachers of his grace, messengers of his kindness and his generosity. And they take them and they beat them and they mock them and they execute them. It's more than the king can bear. It's more than the king can bear. The king has been spat upon long enough. The king has sat and he has watched his grace be trampled and trampled and trampled. He has offered 
generosity. He has offered lavish feasts. He has offered provision. He has offered all of these things. And these wicked people, these wicked people that he has invited to dine with him at his table and to celebrate his son, they are indifferent to him. And perhaps even worse, they are contempt. They, they show contempt for him. And so it says that the king, he sends his own military to descend upon his own city. Except he doesn't call it his city anymore, does he? He doesn't call it his city. He says their city, their city. He sends his military to what was once his city, but is now called their city, and he burns it to the ground. Do you see the picture? Do you see the picture? God had poured water out of a rock for the people of Israel. God had rained bread down from heaven for the people of Israel. And no one should have known the kindness of God. And no one should have known the goodness of God. And no one should have known the provision of God better than the leaders of the temple. And yet as fast as they could get to the golden gods, they did. And God would send servants. He would send preachers, prophets to tell them about his goodness and to call them back to his grace and to call them back to his provision and to call them back into fellowship and to relationship with him. And the, the, the prophets were met with apathy and malice. Sometimes the ears were just deaf. Other times the prophets were slain. Now, the very Son of God who was there, the bridegroom himself, has come. And he goes to the temple, which is now more beautiful to the eyes than ever. Has more gold than it's ever had. Its pinnacle reaches higher than it's ever reached. To any man that has beheld it with their eyes would have said, Now the temple is at its greatest height. It has reached its peak but its worship was deader than it had ever been. And its leaders were more corrupt than they had ever been. So that when the Son of God himself went, he went and he said, this place is filled with dead tombs and it stinks. He flips over tables and he brings condemnation. It's very likely that the burning of the city, the city that was once the city of the king, but is now their city, is a prophetic judgment on Jerusalem itself, which exactly 40 years from the words of Jesus, or approximately 40 years from the words of Jesus, would be laid siege by, Rome, by the Roman Empire itself and would be burned to the ground, the temple itself totally and utterly destroyed to never again be rebuilt. Over a million Jews would lose their lives, including women and children. The city that was once the mighty, indestructible city of God, now laid in ruins. What was once my city is now their city. What's stark here? What's stark here? Is that he takes those who are indifferent and those who murder and he lumps them together. You notice that? You notice that? He calls it their city. 
Now for most of us, we, we consider murder to be a graver sin than apathy. We consider murder to be a greater sin than indifference. But what we see in this parable and what Jesus is teaching the leaders of Israel is that murder and indifference when it comes to the king are nothing more than two shades of the very same thing, rejection of the king. Rejection of the king. See, there is no greater waste of grace than indifference. There is no greater waste of grace than indifference. To receive the kindness of God, to receive the generosity of God, to receive the pleading and the persuasion of God, and then to yawn in the face of God. J.C. Ryle, he once said, he said, open sin will have its thousands, but indifference will, have, will kill its tens of thousands. Open sin will kill its thousands, but indifference will kill its tens of thousands. Yet indifference is an acceptable sin in our homes. Indifference is an acceptable sin in our families. Indifference is an acceptable sin in our churches. Indifference is an acceptable sin among our teenagers. Indifference is an acceptable sins in our own, an acceptable sin in our own hearts. And yet it is indifference that will condemn more sinners to hell than any other sin. Indifference toward the kindness of God. Indifference toward the grace of God. Indifference toward the provision of Jesus Christ, our Savior. As we hear the gospel, as we hear the good news, as we hear the grace of the pleading of our Heavenly Father, and we glaze over yet again. Recently, I read the autobiography of a man named Jack Barsky. So Jack Barsky was a Soviet spy in America in the 1980s. He was a spy, if you've ever watched the, 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 the show The Americans, a lot of it was based on his life. He was trained by the Soviet Union to have an American accent and to, he came over and had an American family and an American job, worked for MetLife at a Fortune 500 company. And he was trained to live an, exactly as an American, to be imperceptible to ordinary Americans so that he could come and he could garner American intelligence the Soviet cause. But something happened to Jack Barsky, which was his American name, while he was over here. He began to believe in the causes of capitalism instead of the causes of communism. He began to, began to believe that the way of the American was more righteous than the way of the Russians. And so slowly, he, his, his hope and his belief that he had believed all of his life and had given his life to begins to erode and begins to fade. And he begins to believe that the thing that he has been fighting against and trying to steal information against is the greater and better way and the greater and better good. And while he is over here, eventually the Soviet Union collapses. And so he is content to continue on with his life as though nothing has ever happened and he believes that he is scot-free, that, that no one knows the difference. His wife doesn't know, his children don't know. He has lived a perfect life and now he is just going to go on and live as an American as though he were never a Russian at all. Until one day he's driving home from his job at MetLife and he goes through the same toll booth that he goes through every single day on his way home to a suburban house that he lives in beside his ordinary American neighbors and on the other side of that toll booth is a fleet of FBI vehicles. And the FBI pulls him over 
And man, they have him dead to rights. They have copious information, tons of evidence that shows him that he has committed treason against the United States of America, that he has been giving out information to the enemy of the state. He said that he will never forget that the very first thing that the FBI agent said to him was this, Jack, today doesn't have to be the worst day of your life. Today doesn't have to be the worst day of your life. Now, I want you to imagine with me that in that moment, when they are offering him immunity and the potential of citizenship, which is what he wants, and they have him dead to rights for treason as an enemy of the state, and they tell him that I can offer you citizenships and a pardon for all the things that you've done, if he would have just looked at them and yawned, he said, I'm okay. I've actually got pizza in the oven. I need, to, I need to go home and grab that. Brothers and sisters, neighbors, you understand that you have committed cosmic treason against a holy God. That you have committed an infinite offense against an infinite God. He has you dead to rights. You are a sinner who sins because you are a sinner. And there is nothing that you can do that will exonerate you. And yet he has come to you by his grace and his mercy and his generosity, by the provision of his own son. And he has said that even in your sin, it does not have to be the hardest day of your life. In fact, it can be the greatest day of your life. Come, come to me and let me pardon you of your sins. Let me set you free of your treason. Let me give you a new citizenship in a greater country and a new inheritance. Come and dine at my table. I am building a new Jerusalem and a new earth and you can come to the wedding supper of the Lamb. How, brothers and sisters, can we be indifferent How can we be apathetic? We were guilty of treason and we have been set free. We were owed death and the grace and generosity of our king has offered us a seat at the table in his kingdom. But our story takes a turn, an unexpected turn. You would expect a king that has been spurned like this. If I send out invitations, and nobody shows up, I'm not sending out more invitations. If I've went to all the trouble, and and I've went out and I've sought out people twice, and I've twice been rebuffed, I've even had some of my servants murdered, I don't know about you, but I don't owe anybody else anything else, and I'd be content just to go about my life. Not this king. This king is greater than that. This king is kinder than that. This king is more determined to bring glory to the name of his son than that. This king is is more determined to pour out his generosity on his people than that. In fact, this king is so determined to bring glory to the name of his son that he tells his his servants this, go to the street corners, go to the street corners. And go to the street corners and whatever peasants you find there, whatever tax collectors you find there, whatever prostitutes you find there, 
Whatever, whatever low, lowly people you find there, you, go, you find them and you welcome them to my table. You welcome them to my, fab- my table. He opens up the guest book. He opens up the guest book. We may even be seeing an illusion here where he goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. But at the very least, we're saying that it is no longer the first, but the least that are welcome first in the kingdom of God. That he is the discarded stone that is now the chief cornerstone that is building a new kind of kingdom that Christ Jesus himself will hold together those who will bear the fruit of the kingdom, the tax collector and the sinner, the lowliest of the people he will bring in and he will build up his kingdom. He issues this universal call to everybody else in all of the kingdom to come and to celebrate his son and to enjoy his lavish feast. So you might summarize the mission of the servants like this. That they went with the mission of the king and the authority of the king to fill the banquet of the king. Does that not sound like our mission? Does that not sound like our mission? Is it not our mission? He even says there, go therefore, doesn't he? He says, go therefore. What does the Great Commission say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Go and invite everybody. There's a universal call. Invite people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation to come and to dine with me and to know me and to experience my kindness and to experience my grace. Brothers and sisters, that's who we are. We have the king's mission and we are sent with the king's authority to go and to fill the banquet table that is to celebrate the wedding supper of the lamb to lift up high the name of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The king is determined that he be worshiped. The king is determined that he be served and he's gonna use us. You know, church, if I'm honest with you, One of the things that I don't sense much among us is a heartbreak and a burden to reaching the lost. If I'm honest with you, and I've searched my own heart this week, and if I'm confessing my sin before you, I don't sense enough weeping in my own life for the lost. I don't know that we can say with integrity right now that we're reaching our community. I don't know that we can say that with integrity. The Lord is doing some some really amazing things here. We've seen two out of the last three Sundays, we've seen people baptized. Praise God for that. But I ask us, when was the last time that you wept over a sinner that didn't know the Lord? When was the last time that you got on your face and you pled with God that he would save someone that you know and that you love? When was the last time that you made an effort to go to someone that is far from God for the purpose of bringing them to God? When was the last time that you entered into a friendship and a relationship and began trying to disciple someone into the image of Jesus Christ or toward Jesus Christ? I believe that we are a church that loves the gospel. I believe that with all of my heart. I'm not so sure right now that we're loving our neighbor well though. I'm not so sure that we're loving our neighbor well right now. If we love the gospel, 
And we believe that the gospel sets us free and that the gospel has set us free and that the gospel can set them free and that Jesus Christ is the answer to the world and that our king has issued a universal call and that we go with his authority to their their good, then how can we not go? How can we not weep? The sentence alone that we are not reaching our community should be enough to keep us awake at night. When was the last time you invited someone to church? That's simple. So easy. When was the last time that you just invited someone to church? When was the last time that your heart was honestly broken for a mom that you knew didn't know the Lord? Or a dad that you knew was trying to raise his family and he can't raise them the way that God would have them to raise them because he doesn't know God. When was the last time? We have babies being born into a young community every single day. And they are being born into hopeless homes. They're being born into homes in which God is not there. Church, does it break our hearts? I don't see and sense much grind about us. I don't sense much hustle about us to go to our neighbor and to plead with them to come and to follow after Jesus Christ. Over the next four weeks, over the next four weeks, we're gonna do a different kind of series. We're gonna take a break from Matthew. We're gonna do a series called Big Questions. We're gonna start this on Easter Sunday. And, the, and the, the, this series is gonna be for four weeks. And the, and the reason we're doing big questions, we're gonna try to answer some big questions that people have. Next Sunday, we're gonna ask the question, how is it that we can know that the Christian God is greater than all other gods? We're gonna try to attack the question on evil. Why does evil exist? And how do we think about evil as Christians? We're gonna talk about the relevancy of the Bible and whether or not science disproves the Bible. We're gonna talk about those things over the next four weeks. Can I just, can I just, can I just plead with you, if you love the gospel and you wanna honor Jesus Christ, would you just invite, people to come and be a part of this I believe that someone might be saved church we've got to grind we've got to grit let us join in with what C.H. Spurgeon said that if they go to hell make them step over our bodies to get there because our king has issued a universal call and he has sent his church with his authority to go to our neighbors and then to the nations I believe I am convinced I am convinced that in the days ahead, Iron City Baptist Church will baptize someone every single week. We will celebrate that. There are too many people around us that don't yet know the Lord. And there are too many missionaries that are sitting right here that love the gospel and love Jesus Christ and are full of the Holy Spirit. And when you've got lost people out there and the Holy Spirit in your hearts and gospel love in your heart, you do the math of that. And man, we are on the edge of revival. The harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Pray for the laborers, church. Let's plead with God that he would raise up laborers and that he would start with us. He would start with us. I am praying that he would start with me. I am praying that he would start with me. I've repented of my sin. I'm seeking after the Lord. Would you join me? Would you join me? He does something strange at the end of this parable. He turns his attention from telling 
these temple leaders that it will be taken from them and given to someone else as he's been doing for all three parables and he begins to look at the disciples themselves. Those that are within the church. And he's saying, "Don't, don't get lost in this discussion. Not every prostitute, not every tax collector, not every person that says, Lord, Lord, and accepts the message of Jesus will be brought into the kingdom of heaven. And so he tells that there are good and bad that are collected by the servants and brought to the wedding feast. And he tells us the story of one of the bad. He says, the king comes into the wedding banquet and he looks and he must have been bursting with pride as he sees the banquet hall filled to the glory of his son. But there's one there, there's one there. There's one there that said, yes, I will go and I will honor the king, yes, I will accept the king's invitation. One there who said, Lord, Lord. The king goes up and he says, how did you get in here, friend? How did you get in here? Your clothes don't match. You are wearing rags. Everyone else is in a wedding garment. He says, the man doesn't have an excuse, he's speechless. I think this is indicative that all of these people were coming from the same place. All of these people were coming from the street corner. It is that the king was providing the wedding garments. The king was clothing them. And here this man did not even have enough obedience, enough devotion to the king to clothe himself in the clothing that was provided by the king. He was still sitting there in the presence of a holy and righteous king, even though he had said, Lord, Lord, in his own filthy rags. See, not everybody that sits in the church and says, I love Jesus, and says, Lord, Lord, and has walked through a baptistry and signed a decision card will be accepted into the kingdom of God. Many of them are still indifferent to Jesus. They believe Jesus is truly God. They believe that Jesus really did die on a cross. They believe that Jesus really did raise from the dead. And yet they yawn. They say, God, I want you to give yourself to me, but don't you expect me to give myself to you. They want to walk through the narrow gate by saying, Lord, Lord, but they have no intentions of walking down the narrow path, which Jesus says is hard. They want God to give them all the fruit of the kingdom, but they have no intentions of bearing the fruit of obedience in their own life. So they stand in the presence of a holy God, not clothed in the righteousness that he provides, but instead in their own filthy rags. They have not experienced the inward, outward transformation so that their heart is new and their desires are new and their passions are different. Faith without works is dead, brothers and sisters. Faith without works is dead. And if you're clinging to nothing more than a baptism, if you're clinging to nothing more than a time when you were eight or nine or 12 or 13 and you said, Lord, Lord, and nothing about you changed and nothing about your opinions changed and nothing about your desires changed, you didn't put on the righteousness of Jesus. You just said, yeah, I think Jesus is good, but I don't intend in any part of my life to give Jesus all of my life. And right now, if you stand before him, you will be cast out into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth because you will stand before him with Nothing but filthy rags. But can I tell you something? If you hear me, it is not too late for you. You are still under the gracious call of Jesus Christ to repent of your sins so that you might know what it is not just like to be the called, but to be a part of the very chosen people of God. Let's pray together.